it's time for the chip race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, now sponsored by Unibet Poker. I'm your host David Lappin, with me is Darrow Kearney, and tonight we are joined by WSOP Main Event Final Tableist, UKIPT Galway winner and all-round legend of Irish poker, Porrick Parkinson. We catch up with former EPT and current Unibet Poker commentator, GPI's 2014 Media Person of the Year, Mark Convey. Darrow and Ian will have a row about how best to play from the small blind, but first... As many of you probably know, my co-commentator used to run ultramarathons, once running 237 kilometres, if you can believe that, over a 24-hour period. Doing that, he broke the Irish record. These days, a 60-kilometre run, and Dara doesn't feel like doing his usual 12-hour online grind. So, Dara, I have you here. Why are you so lazy these days? <laughs> Imposters. First of all, I'd say that when when I started playing poker, I was still a competitive runner, um, and the training that I had to do was uh, the training that a competitive runner needed. Now, poker actually, I think, poker essentially ended my competitive running career because I found it impossible to juggle the two. I could still kind of do the same amount of training, but I was just too drained, and then instead of like going and recovering from that, I was going to play poker, and then I was going to the next training session, and I was tired. So I've, I just found it very hard to, to balance the two. So I, I kind of came through a period where, you know, my competitive running career ended, and I was jogging, you know, three or four times a week to try and stay in shape. But, you know, with the best will in the world, um, you do lose shape. Yeah, people will automatically see a bit of crossover there you know poker days can be very long online poker days if you want to do a big sunday can be particularly excruciating maybe 15 16 hours so stamina is obviously hugely important how you eat during the day all that kind of stuff really plays a big part yeah i felt that was one of my huge edges early on when we started like my first big live uh, breakthrough event was the very first european deep stack that was a, that was a grueling event it was, it was a four-day event very long days and i certainly felt by the time we got to the end of the last day that i was considerably sharper at the table and more mentally alert and I felt that that came because of my running background and the fact that I was in, I was in really good shape and I think all through the first few years of my career that felt that always felt like a huge advantage to me we would get to the business end of the tournament which is the important part of the tournament and other people would be getting tired and I would just be you know getting my second or third wind and, and feeling much stronger but having said that over the years that did sort of diminish and I remember maybe four or five years into my career writing on my blog that I'd almost fallen asleep at a table, uh, which had never happened to me before. And that was kind of a wake-up call to me that just because you used to be a top-class um, ultra runner doesn't mean you have the same level of stamina and it's something you actually have to start working at. And what did you do to, to address that? What I did was I basically upped my training again. I, I, I had reached the point where I was basically a recreational jogger running three or four times a week. That, to be honest, wasn't giving me that kind of stamina. So I, I started increasing my long runs again. Um, and, and my general mileage. So I went from running, let's say, 20 miles a week to running five, f five days a week, I'd run six to eight miles, and then one day I would run uh, a long run of up to 30 miles. Um, and that just sort of brought my stamina back. Okay, well, even that sounds a little bit extreme from my point of view. You know, a two-kilometer run is, is, is as much as I like. So, uh, you know, to the regular people out there, the non-ultra runners out there, you know, what kind of fitness regime would you recommend? I think it's great that people are, are generally more interested in exercise and, and, and recognizing the sort of connection between mind and body, and you know, uh, healthy body, healthy mind. I guess my concern about it is the type of exercise that, that a lot of, particularly the younger poker players, t tend to um, concentrate on is uh, what I would call bodybuilding and weightlifting and gym work. 
Um, and I'm not convinced, I'm really not convinced that there's any major advantages to poker um, from doing that kind of stuff. In fact, there might even be some disadvantages in the sense that when you build a lot of muscle, uh, you have to burn a lot of fuel at the time, even when you're sitting. Um, so if you're sitting at a poker table for a long time, you can be getting hungry and crabby and, and, and your focus can go be because you're so muscle bound. Whereas the, the kind of training that I did for years, the, the ultra running training, what that actually does to the body apart from like improving oxygen transport, which is always good for the brain and heart health, the main adaptation was just making the body more efficient in terms of burning fuel. So everything that um, an ultra runner does, he does more efficiently in terms of the amount of calories that he burns and so on. So you, you, you don't get tired, uh, you don't get hungry as quickly as, uh, as other people. Um, so I always felt that that specifically was is the type of training that that uh, poker players um, should be thinking about if they want to improve their poker. And yet, most of the um, literature that I see out there is pushing people into gyms. Well, there you have it. Some some pro tips. Uh, you know, if you if you are the kind of poker player uh, who you know, I guess if you're playing live as well as online and you want to be able to play long sessions, you know, you have to look at these things. Have to look at all aspects of your life. Uh, thank you very much, Darrow Kearney. Thank you. We're joined now by 2014 Media Person of the Year, Mark Convey. I got that year right, did I, Mark? You did, you did get it right indeed. Yeah. I was worried. I didn't know. You've been a Media Person of the Year in contention for at least five years. I didn't know which one it was. Well, it was the first year. It was the inaugural award. So it was the, yeah, but I, I do see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark, it's great to have you here these days, uh, sort of transitioning your role from what was a kind of a blogging role, a commentating role for uh, <coughs> poker stars uh, into uh, now you're working for Unibet and you've got your own company. I have. Yes. Yeah. I just uh, needed a, a new challenge. You know, 10 years I spent uh, blogging and commentating for various different um, sites and tours. And um, yeah, I just felt like I, I needed a, a new challenge and kind of take my career to the next level and try and utilize all the experience that I've had and built up over the last 10 years and help out various different companies and operators and just be in control of my own thing as well and I, I kind of needed that so so you must be good at now that you're mostly thought of as David Vander Hayden's sidekick I know it's pretty I mean but the thing is luckily that we're we're good friends so I can uh, I can always lean on you and you know take your advice and your experience from being a fellow sidekick yourself uh, and and with that I bring in you know, my Batman, Darrow Kearney. Darrow, what do you think of what Mark's saying here? The thing that stands out for me about Mark is, um, I mean, Mark's been around for as long as I've uh, been a player, and he's been in, he's done so many different roles down the years. Uh, like, how did you get started in in poker, and um, like, which of those roles do you particularly enjoy? Um, I got started in poker probably around about 2005, just playing. Um, I got introduced to it by some friends and played some sit and goes. And um, I just generally won most of them, and I thought, okay. I mean, I always played cards a lot as a as a child. Very, I was very competitive as well, playing various sports. So poker was a great way to, you know, transition that competitiveness uh, away from the physicality into kind of the, the mental side. And I was struggling um, to find a direction in my career. You know, I was doing some volunteering at homeless charity while I was playing as well, and I managed to make some money quite quickly online so I would never say I was ever a full-time professional but maybe I was a semi-professional and um, I'd needed to find a bit more balance so I was a member of um, an online and a live community in London which was very vibrant at the time is the, the Gutshot Poker Club 
which had a, a really good online forum and it was uh, a lot of the up-and-coming players in London at the time were um, part of this group and they had an editorial side to their website and they were advertising for someone to come along and do some live blogging. So I trialled at um, EPT London Season 3, uh, the one that Vicky Coron won uh, for a day and uh, uh, they saw something in me and so I did a few EPTs that, that year while still playing you know, in between and then um, the industry exploded in Europe and the opportunities just started to arise and I guess I was ahead of the curve. Uh, there were certainly better writers around than me but I already had you know, banked a year or two of experience part-timing with Gutshot. Um, so I became uh, yeah, a blogger. I was Mad Harper's um, assistant media coordinator for a year on the EPT. I was not very good at that job. Uh, and then I joined the, the Pokestars blog uh, and I was working for Poke News at the 2008 World Series and it kind of just took off from there and then I allowed the playing side just to sort of just become more recreational. And what did you feel were the characteristics that made you like a good blogger or what are the characteristics in general of a successful blogger? Um, I think um, initially it's, it was work, work ethic. I think that was the thing that got me. Um, I find it hard to get motivated to get started on something, but when I'm started on something, I'll just go, go and go and go. And you really need that when you're blogging, especially back in the day when um, EPTs and the like were crammed into into four days or effectively three days if you you know only count the starting flights as one day so that you'd be starting at midday and not finish until 4 a.m and then back in again for midday but you're obviously there an hour before and an hour after play so the days were ridiculously long um i think i was lucky that i was i was paired with um stephen bartley um at gutshot and then again later in the pokestars blog and he was a really really good writer but he would admit himself he you know the, the poker side is not definitely something he was good at whereas i came in from having like quite a mathematical analytical mind and the poker really made sense to me and I just learned off of these great writers like him and Howard Swains and offered balance to the blog so I didn't have to be a brilliant writer but I just learned that trade through just being very lucky to work with some very talented writers. One thing I noticed about you is that you had a lot of friends who were poker players and a lot of the um people would tell you hands afterwards, um, which, you know, you uh, you often ask me about hands uh, which just happened at the table and I'd be happy to tell you because, you know, you were you, you were a friendly face. How important do you think that is in terms of, like, building good relations with pre with players? Um, I think it depends who you ask. Um, some people uh, like to approach live blogging by, by staying in, in the shadows and not being there at all and just um, reporting what they see. And um, it's hard to argue with, you know, with them on that. Uh, but I felt because there was so much that you miss in a poker tournament and sometimes you could be scratching around for 40 minutes trying to find a hand to write. So I felt very quickly uh, that it was good to build relationships with players for the, you know, for the, for the reasons that you just gave. Um, but then, you know, you also need to sort of clarify that, okay, so-and-so helped us out. So I would say, oh, you know, uh, want to thank Dara Kinney for, you know, filling us in in his hand because I didn't see it. Too many, I think too many bloggers will take that information and then write it as if they saw it themselves, which I don't think you should do. And Mark, can you tell us how you segued from the blog side of things to um, becoming a commentator? Uh, you know, obviously you, you speak very well, you have a nice articulate voice, but it has to be more than that. You know, there must have been something that, you know, someone saw on you to give you a crack at that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of people over the years have called me a gobby shite. So, uh, That's what I, I was being, I was doing polite I know, I know, I'm yeah, reading yeah. between the lines. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, it's, um, I've kind of come full circle, really. It's, you know, uh, it was my very first taste of doing commentary was 
at uh, Unibet Open in London. I think it was back in 2009. So I might have even been season two or something. And I was there uh, doing, uh, I did a few of the blogs back in the day. And um, yeah, I went in and guested with, um, uh, I think it was B.A. Kaldron, who used to be a Norwegian blogger back in the day. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of like this. Uh, and then went to Unibet Open um, Prague. And Eva, who used to, to um, be the event manager of the tour back then, um, asked me to do it again. And suddenly I'm live and I don't have any information. There's one camera pointing at the table. There's a production crew uh, that are kind of learning on the job. And it was um, <laughs> it was a baptism of fire. You know, I started just looking up at the, 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 the ceiling and, you know, describing how pretty the ceiling was because I didn't have a clue what was going on on a poker table. But uh, but thankfully, you know, technology and everything and, the you know, the streaming capabilities of a lot of companies, including Unibet, has, has really uh, gone on from there. And um, but really, like my big break came, I guess, when uh, Volcano City, who were producing the live stream for um, the EPT uh, back in the day, they um, were expanding their team because um, I'd done a few guest slots. I'd done a few final tables on the EPT and it had always gone very well. And they said, you know, we're expanding the team. We'd like you to come on um, full time um, on the EPTs. Uh, so I did Barcelona. It went very well that year. And it was only going to be for the televised ones initially, so I should sort of clarify. But then um, they realised that because of the fact that I knew so many players that I could do uh, a dual role. So the ones that weren't televised, just live stream. So I'd be a full-time commentator on the televised ones. And then the ones that weren't televised, the EPT Live Lite, as it was called, I would do half production and then uh, be like a fill-in for, for Joe and James whenever they needed a break. Personally, I think live streams really add to to the atmosphere at a tournament, both in terms of it means that people at home can watch, but even for the people who are there, I think the very fact that there is a live stream uh, adds adds an extra dimension to it. You know, people like being on a feature table, um, particularly recreational players. I think it's it can, it can be a big draw. When you're doing the commentary on a live stream, like how conscious are you of that the audience is probably primarily recreational players? Um, I'm I'm very conscious of it actually, um, especially uh, with Unibet Opens. You know, I don't do EPT live anymore. On on that stream, there would have been more pros pros listening but for me um i always felt that it was a vehicle to to attract new players into the game and make it fun so i never wanted to, to make it too analytical um obviously i'm not a professional poker player anyway so i wouldn't be able to do it to the to the level of you guys um i'm happy to do some basic analysis but then i'm also very happy to uh you know play the idiot when we get a pro in and let him do the strategy talk but i think fundamentally it should be kind of like uh entertainment and uh try and make it you're trying to sell how open and welcoming these these tours are, and we want people to come and visit. So yeah, it's that it's that yeah. idiot role that I play when I'm in with Darrow Kearney as well. I think you're well, David. I think you, you play well at any in any scenario, you. mate. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Mark, one final thing, and it kind of brings us full circle in, in a sense, is your partnership with David Vander Hayden. Obviously, you know, you, you had a partnership with um, Matt Broughton, I think, with EPT. That's right, yeah. How, how was it transitioning from, from your partnership with Matt to, to that with Dave? Um, surprisingly easy, actually. Um, you never know until you get in a commentary booth uh, with someone uh, whether or not it's going to be a success. Um, you don't have to be the same type of person, the same into the same things. Uh, you know, David and I have, are, very, are very different in terms of our interests and what we do. Uh, but I, within half an hour uh, at Unibet Open Can, uh, the first one I did for Unibet Open, um, uh, I knew that, yeah, we had, we had that connection and something special and a, a really, really good rapport. 
Uh, basically, I just started needling in him, see if he could take my salty personality. And he just started laughing and I was like, we're going to be good here. Yeah, I think it's one of the real intangibles when you have these partnerships. Uh, you never really know how the how the chemistry is going to work. Uh, I know I was really apprehensive the first time I brought David into a commentary box, but actually we clicked right from the start. You weren't as apprehensive as the sponsor that day, I remember. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the first time was at an Irish Open, I think, and uh, I probably was re regarded as somewhat of a mouthy gob, much like yourself, Mark. Sorry, you're talking in past tense here. You, Maybe, you were, you I were. would have been thought that I've mellowed. I've, I'm uh, an older person in the boat community now I've I've matured that's kind of uh, how time but I was seen believe it or not I was seen as someone who's maybe quite sarcastic quite opinionated I believe the phrase I used to, to try and smooth things over with the sponsor was maverick a maverick okay I'll wow, take that wow that's a that's a new one for me even you know for David yeah. and I believe these days you live uh, in Brighton I do yeah moved down here um, you know to to set up this company uh, just want to give a shout out to to Jason and James uh, my two partners in crime and uh, they both live down here, so it was a natural place for us to, to, to set up the company down here. So I moved from London down, and um, I'm loving it so far, no regrets. And I believe you have a very special next-door neighbour? Yes, Madeline Harper. She uh, bounds around upstairs. Some people call it stomping. I just call it bounding. Yeah. She, she told me that you play music very late at night. Uh, she told me, yeah, asked me to turn the bass down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so um, maybe that's late at night for her. <laughs> Um, well, listen, brilliant to have you, Mark. Always a pleasure. Um, bit of a treat having you in the box today, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. A treat for me as well. Two years two years too late, but uh, two years after the first you, invitation. You, you were going to be the next guest if they'd just given us eight shows. Yeah. You would have been you the next guest. You were number eight. Yeah. I okay. promise. Well, best of luck with this uh, new season, guys. I'm uh, really <laughs> looking forward to, to hearing them all. Thank you very much. And now it's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Not just the news, the news not coming from a toilet. I've gone up in the world. I've been allowed out of the toilet this week. Uh, so, what's been happening in the poker world? Ryan Reese, World Series main event champion, can add the WPT Seminole Hard Rock Poker final to his list of achievements. He won $720,000. Uh, beating out a final table that included Cliff Josephy, Tim West and Jason Kuhn. Very well done to that man. Ari Angle won the MSPT Milwaukee $1,100 main event in Potawatomi Casino for $115,000. Not bad scores, not bad scores this week. Uh, Anthony Rodriguez, he won the Unibet Deep Stack Open uh, in Saint Amand Leso. Um, for 19,000 euros. That was just for a 550 euro buy-in. Uh, the next stop on the Deep Stack Open Tour is in Marrakesh on May the 11th till the 14th. So if you're in the market for a 550 comp, that might be up your street. Um, Chris Dowlin. Chris Dowlin's doing pretty damn good. Aside from a final table in the Irish Open not so long ago, he managed to come second in two separate Norwegian events. Um, he got second in the 2K High Roller, and he got second in the 1K Turbo. Um, many congratulations to him. Um, sorry, I actually came second to Steve Warburton in the 2K High Roller. So Steve Warburton has kind of been cursed with second places for a lot of his career. So it's kind of nice to see him get a win. On the online felt, James Noonan won himself $9,700 for coming in second place in the Winamax W Series, event number 68 on Saturday. Uh, he's still third in the Irish Pocket 5 rankings behind Toby Joyce and Dan Wilson, but there's only 40 points separating the trio, so those three are still tight. 
Uh, be interesting to see how they develop. Kenny Hallett, November 9er, um, had a big Friday. He won two tourneys. He won the PokerStars Big 215. Not an easy tournament. And that was a 40k guarantee that net netted him $11,000. Uh, and he also won the Hot 55 35k guaranteed for $6,880. Not bad at all. Uh, one last mention, um, Jerry Kane, aka The Gatherer. He won one of the six uh, Copenhagen satellites on Sunday night, so he bagged himself a 2k package, so we'll be seeing him in Copenhagen. Yeah, of course, that last result you mentioned there, Ian, uh, for the Unibet Copenhagen in uh, in just, what, a better month's time. Uh, really looking forward to that one. Oh, that'll be awesome. End of May. Uh, Copenhagen's just a beautiful city. So if you get knocked out, it's not the end of the world because you've got a beautiful city to explore. Exactly. And it's good to see that those satellites are getting, you know, six packages now. They were getting four and five early on. I guess as we get closer to the event, we can probably expect that number to grow. Hopefully. I mean, it's a five. there's five guaranteed on a Sunday and one guaranteed on a Wednesday. So it's nice to see that they broke the guarantee and got six packages last night. Well, it would be remiss of me to not mention some of these live results again. Ryan Reese, obviously, he's a World Series main event champion. Uh, he famously proclaimed that day that he was the best player in the world. I believe there's a nice quote from him, much more humble as he gets older. Uh, he said that uh, that was just something he said in the moment. And he now realises how bad his game was four years ago. Anyway, not bad enough. He obviously took down the WPT event. So a great score there. And a good friend of mine, Ari Engel, who is, you know, one of, you know, life's grinders. He really has, you know, grinded that live circuit uh, for years in the kind of 500 to 1k circuit and you know these days you know anything goes high rollers and the rest uh, Ari's result there um, in Milwaukee brought his lifetime earnings uh, live to 4.6 million and he's now an eight time WSOP circuit ring winner the 2016 Aussie millions champ and now a uh, MSPT champion so pretty sick he's doing all right then he's doing okay not too bad at all. Also, nice of you to mention James Noonan, a uh, good pal of ours here, uh, with that almost 10k score last Saturday. Um, they're really fighting it out there at the top of the Irish rankings now, him, Toby Joyce and Dan Wilson. I feel like I should be railing those three just all the time just to learn. Just load, load up whatever websites they're playing on on a Saturday and a Sunday night and just be like, okay, how, how do you do it then? How do you beat this poker game? And just watch those three. And of course, a special mention for Kenny Hallert, who is our Unibet uh, tournament director, uh, Spacey FCB, as he's well known online and has been for years, obviously a November 9 or 2. He's been beasting it up, but, you know, he's obviously got the bankroll now to play anything he wants. So, you know, he's playing all the big games. That's it. I mean, he won a hell of a lot of money and he still grinds the, the hot 55 and stuff like that. He just loves the game. Uh, so, and he's, a, he's a, he seems like a real gentleman. I don't know him very well, but the couple of interactions I've had, you know, I think everyone on that list seems like a real gentleman, which is, you know, it's nice to see the good guys winning, isn't it? It certainly isn't. Well, listen, thank you so much, Ian. I'm glad we finally got you out of the jacks. It is nice to be out of the toilet. It's, it, you know, the, the food poisoning's cleared up. I'm finally out, and, you know, back to the real world. Great stuff. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much. Take care, man. One of the most difficult things to do in poker is to play from the small blind. It's it's the worst seat in the house. Uh, you're out of position against everybody else on every street. Um, very difficult to know exactly how to you know set up your strategy for that. Uh, in the booth today, we have Ian Simpson. Ian, two years ago, you wrote a strategy piece on playing from the small blind where you advocated strongly against ever min-raising. Um, we held Daryl O'Carney in the booth as well. 
So this is going to be a little bit, just for the audience out there, it's going to be a little bit of a dilemma here now. You're going to have to decide who you like the most. Ian's <laughs> going to advocate uh, min raising being bad. Dara, I think you believe min raising can be okay sometimes. Yep. Okay, Ian, uh, I guess I should give you the first go because you wrote the article, you wrote the piece. Give me a little rundown on why you think you know it's always bad. I didn't say it was always bad, but I think it's bad very often because the caliber of today's player is so much higher than it was and you know, maybe 10 years ago or whatever, or five years ago, whatever you want to go by. Um, most players are quite confident, and if you min-raise, you're going to give them three to one without Andy's. And if you give them, if, if it's later in the tournament when there's antis involved, that could be getting closer to four to one. And someone getting four to one in position against you, I mean, what hands are they going to really dump? That's a good point. Maybe they shouldn't fold any hands. But is that necessarily a bad thing that they shouldn't be folding any hands, Dara? Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, in, in this situation anyway, both pairs have very wide ranges. We know that the guy from coming from the small blind is raising a very wide range of hands. The guy in the big blind has positional advantage. He's supposed to defend anyway, irrespective of the sizing. So it's not necessarily the case that by going with a bigger sizing, you're necessarily going to cut down the range of the big blind too much. He's still going to defend a lot. Um, the problem with the bigger raise sizing is you're basically putting in more chips into the pot at a positional disadvantage. Yeah, so if, if the guy's getting uh, a good price, okay, he's going to call. If you give him a better price, or sorry, if you give him a worse price, I should say, he still might call. Now you've got a more bloated pot and you're out of position. Same problem. Exactly, So which is why I only apply the 3x raise against players who I've identified to who fold too much. Okay. Now, you know, Dara, why do you think setting your stall up as Ian has is is overall a strategic mistake? I think at certain stack sizes, say b below 20 big blinds or less, it becomes very important every big blind you put into the pot, what your, what your equity on that is. As a general rule, when you break down the mats of small blind versus big blind, the big blind usually has about twice as much equity in the hand. He's going to win twice as often. So, so every big blind that goes into the pot, essentially the big blind is twice as more likely to win it. So if you put in, if let's say you 4x, so the pot is now eight big blinds, the the big blind is going to win on average um, two thirds of that, which is five and one third. So the small blind has put in um, three extra big blinds, and his share of the pot is actually less than that. So he's he's made a fundamental mistake. Whereas if he puts in two big blinds, you know, if he min raises, the overall pot size is four big blinds. His share of that is one third of that approximately on average. So he's put in one big blind to have equity of one and a third of a big blind. Okay, well, to push Dara's example to a bit more of an extreme, should we ever be raising in that case? Should we just be limping? I like a limp from the small blind, very, very frequently. Um, if, like I say, I only bring out a raising strategy if my opponent is folding too many hands. Okay, Dara? Yeah, I agree 100%. When you, when you actually break down the maths of this, it's really interesting. If you, if you set the, the game theory solvers up and you give them the option of, let's say with 20 big blinds, you can raise 2x, you can raise 3x, you can raise 4x, or, or you can shove, it will never 3x or 4x. It will only 2x or shove. Okay. Um, interesting. And I think a big reason for that is the bigger the raise size that it's allowed, the less hands that it can profitably raise. So, for example, if you're 3xing or 4xing your entire range, you can only play about 45% hands profitably. If you bring it down to a 2x, you can now play 60% hands. But actually, the logical conclusion, as David suggested, is if we go all the way down to limping, now you can actually limp, or, or you can limp 90% of your hands profitably. Okay, but the problem with limping is we've shown no real aggression. We're setting ourselves up to have our price dictated to us by a big blind who may now bump it up. And we've shown no aggression 
the problem there being we don't have a betting lead. Does this create problems further down, maybe on further streets, Ian? Definitely does, um, which is why it's good to limp strong hands too. Okay, so setting up a, maybe a limp to re-raise strategy is limp, good in that spot. I do like a limp raise strategy as well, yeah. Especially 20 big blinds deep because then you can totally negate the positional advantage. I think if you're, if you're going to switch to a limping strategy or say you're splitting your strategy between limping and shoving, then you have to limp your entire range. You can't just limp certain types of hands um, because then you become exploitable. But if you're limping both strong and weak hands, you're, you're basically protected because if the guy decides he's always going to attack your limps, then the strong part of your range is going to exploit him. Dara, let's say you're playing 20 big blinds uh, and you're employing a limping strategy in that situation blind v blind. What are the hands that you would consider to be limp shoves to say a 3.5x from the big blind? Uh, any decent ace, any pair, uh, good Broadway cards, um, decent suited connectors. What's what's the worst suited king you would include in that range, hypothetically? Uh, if I was playing against a balanced player, um, like who, who's who's playing close to optimally, probably like king eight suited. Okay. But if I'm playing against like a maniac, I'd probably shove any any suited king. Okay. Cool. Okay, so with that counter strategy in mind then, you're, you're basically punishing anybody from the big blind who's going to just willy-nilly, you know, throw in a 4x and try and punish your limp. Yeah, I mean, that used to be the, what, what, what live players thought was the problem with limping, that the, that the big blind can almost raise, and, and, and that's clearly not the case uh, because you have, a, you have a very profitable counter strategy. Okay. Any final thoughts, Ian? Uh, no, I think I agree with everything Dara said, really. So you've now changed your mind? No, not at all. So, uh, so, so that card player article from two years ago you know no longer relevant don't bother reading it well you could say that but when have you wrote anything good as promised we are joined tonight by WSOP main event final tableist UK IPT Galway winner and all round legend of Irish poker Porrick Parkinson Porrick welcome to the show oh thanks very much I thought you guys would never ask <laughs> first things first I know Dara has a question he's been itching to ask you so I'm going to throw straight over to Dara you're an official ambassador for party, so I guess that makes you a rival ambassador to me and David. You've represented quite a few companies down the years, so do you, <laughs> do you have any tips on how you keep landing these gigs? Well, you have to start fucking them up first, <laughs> then, then you find yourself looking for a new one. But I think with party, I, I landed um, pretty softly. Parky, before we talk about the Irish Open, uh, and of course we're going to let you plug the upcoming Party Poker Millions, I hope you don't mind if I take you back to 1999 and the WSOP there. That was the year you were one of three Irish guys on the final table. You came third, George McKeever seventh, and Noel Furlong, I believe, won it. Looking back now, what are your memories of that final table? Um, well, it was absolutely fantastic. It was the first time I ever played the World Series. So, um, I mean, it, it was a hell of a buzz the whole way through. But uh, before the final table, um, Mike Sexton was there and he had Stu Unger's daughter. And uh, Stu had just passed away. And um, Mike was there saying a few words about Stu. So the, the whole thing was, I mean, I was fired up already. Like, and then, then it all got emotional. And um, it, it was pretty inspiring, like, you know. That, I mean, it, it kind of brought... To a reality to the thing that you were uh, following in the footsteps of uh, of some of the the legends, like I mean, and uh, certainly Stewie was right up there. Yeah, absolutely. Even some legends or or, or guys who became legends maybe afterwards uh, at that at that final table as well. Eric Seidel came fourth, of course, and Hookseed sixth. Yeah, I mean it was uh, well. They were obviously uh, pretty much favourites to win the thing. I mean, even then I knew Seidel was a great player. 
and uh, Hooks record speaks for itself. But, you know, it was my first time playing it, and, uh, you know, there was only 396 players playing it that year, so, I mean, th th there was never the expectation that there is now that, you, that you, you'll never get there again. I mean, you know, I, I got knocked out in third, uh, but I was quite happy. I was free-rolling at the whole thing and uh, went off on the drink and uh, thought, well, I didn't win this one, but you're, this is pretty easy. <laughs> I should win one or two of these before and finished. And then, of course, the explosion came. And it was only... But, I mean, I was delighted. I mean, I got half a million dollars. That wasn't too bad. But... Um, we didn't know at the time about, you know, that, that the poker explosion was going to really take off and that actually losing a, a World Series, finishing third, actually cost millions in the end. I thought I'd made half a million. I'd probably lost about 10 or 15 because at that time, uh, you know, poker stars were signing up. Um, any ex-world champion that could put two words together and uh, giving them a couple of million a year. I think you would have been really well placed because your, your quick wit made you an instant celebrity on American TV from that final table. Um, so I guess we were lucky you were there to liven things up. What do you think of televised poker today? Televised poker today is a little bit, you know, it was, I did an interview seven or eight years ago for one of those, with John Young for one of those English magazines. And I, and I predicted that um, poker would go the same way as snooker in that, um, you know, back in those days, the poker players were a lot wilder and there were probably a lot more characters around. And, uh, you know, with the, the internet and all of that, the, um, you know, the, the, the new level of poker players became, uh, you know, both very, very good, but very, very disciplined and probably not as exciting as uh, the old guys. So, um, so the TV, I mean, you know, like when TV poker started in, in England and the Devilfish won the, the, the first late night poker, I mean, that was just unbelievable for poker because here was a guy who was just larger than life and who became an instant, um, instantly recognisable, you know, way beyond poker. And he probably... Um, he probably did a huge amount for poker that day, but you know, then the TV became, uh, you know, guys were wearing hoodies and they were hiding down their shirts and um, there was no conversation at the table, so that they, which is fine for the, um, you know, the students of the game who, who wanted to watch and analyse everything, but uh, people kind of forgot maybe that when they were at a televised table, like I'm not saying everybody should make an ass of themselves, but uh, it would have been better if uh, if guys just realised that they were in the entertainment business. And Porik, do you think anyone from today's crop who do bring personality to the table in the same way as guys from your generation did? I mean, of course there's still a load of guys around, I mean, who are good crack. Sometimes you look at a final table and you think you're looking at, uh, at guys that are queuing up outside the dentists. Like, you know, when, the, <laughs> when these guys are playing for a couple of million quid, but the, there seems to be a kind of a misconception that they think that they have to look serious and uh, you know and have a furrowed brow and the whole lot I mean it, you can be having fun and talking and, uh, and and still be sort of playing your A game. Well look you mentioned there a few minutes ago late night poker uh, I got into poker first of all as a student watching you on I think it was like a Thursday night on Channel 4 or something like that uh, really entertained me yeah we made it look like an easy game to beat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know I didn't know much back then so when you guys were like playing your six big blind stacks like I guess we play 20 bigs these days it made sense to me for sure but uh, no look I really enjoyed uh, watching that coverage that was a real you know that smoky room TV cameras lots of personalities they really did a good job of pushing personality 
first and, and were in the entertainment business, I think, which was the great thing. You won Series 5 of that in 2002 on a final table. I remember that included Joe Beavers, Dale Coldcloth, Surinder Sunar, you know, all legends of the game as well in the UK. What was that experience like? Uh, it was kind of a little bit surreal because uh, when I was going over there from Ireland, I'd uh, called in to see my mother in hospital who just uh, got cancer for the second time and the prognosis wasn't very good. So I did what any, what any good son would do and went off and went into piss in, in, in Cardiff. But uh, the thing was uh, a little bit strange because um, Hamish had died uh, the, um, a couple of days before that and some of the guys were off in a helicopter down to um, uh, down to London for uh, for the funeral so the late night poker the final took place maybe at about midnight and uh, you know there was a certain air of uh, I mean he, he, the guy had just won the um, uh, season four of late night poker and I mean and he'd won a bracelet I mean uh, it was really kind of strange because when the guy I, I was talking to him the morning he won the bracelet and he was sitting on a chair up against the wall in Binion's on his own and I w- just went over to wish him luck and uh, ended up and he was telling me that he'd been feeling ill all night um, and uh, I mean he was in pretty bad shape but he still went in and won a bracelet playing uh, playing limit poker which was probably I mean in light of what happened afterwards you know he, he, he flew home from Vegas and went into hospital and, uh, and died there months later but, uh, you know, in the, in the light of what was to happen, it was probably one of the greatest performances of all time that he, that he hung in and, and won his bracelet on top of the late-night poker, and, and then he died. So there the was a bit fairly sombre. You know, Joe Beavers was pretty close to him. Uh, Vicky was, uh, Vicky Corwin was as well, and, you know, a lot of the, the London mob. So um, they were all, you know, in those days at late-night poker, everybody used to hang around. You know, if you got beaten your heat, you hung around for three or four days and had a few drinks and the whole up. So the the air, the atmosphere was pretty sombre. So it was kind of a little bit strange. So if we wind forward a few years from the late night poker, I think you had a very good summer in 2006 when you came third in a WSOP 1500 event for 200k and fourth in a Borgata event. Um, do you remember much about that summer? Um, yeah, well, it, people don't believe this, but uh, after I got to the final table of the World Series the first time, I mean, I, I, I did begin to realise just how difficult it was, and I, I had a lot of um, I had a lot of issues that that had to be dealt with, and the, the main one being drink. So uh, I figured that I, I wanted to win the, the World Series so badly that uh, I could knock the drink on the head. So for about ten years. Um, I'd, uh, I'd get absolutely slaughtered on, on, on New Year's Eve and I wouldn't have another drink until, um, until after I got knocked out of the main event. Now, if anybody's thinking of doing it, don't bother because it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it probably kept me alive and, uh, and it, it gave me a big focus in life. It, you know, it, it's a bit like the Irish Open. I mean, and, um, like I, I know I've said it a few times, but it's, you know, either you win one before you die or you die before you win one. And it doesn't really matter as long as you keep trying and, uh, and giving it your best shot. Well, speaking of uh, events that occurred, I guess, after World Series main event bust out and before New Year's Eve, uh, in 2009, <laughs> you played in Galway uh, the very first UK IPT and won it for 103 grand. I believe that was a that was a bit of a, a, a session. Now, I wasn't there myself. It was probably two seasons before I started playing that tour, but I know Dara was there. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was there. That was a brilliant festival. The, the UKIPs were always great crack, uh, loads of partying. 
Uh, I think it's fair to say that while you were progressing through the tournament, you were having a good time. <laughs> was, well, I didn't go to bed the first night because I, I, I had a low stack and was, I was pretty slaughtered for um, for all of day two. I remember I was sharing a room with Scott Gray and I had to wake mm -hmm. him. I had gone into day three. I woke him about five o'clock in the morning and said, am I in the tournament? And he says, are you in the tournament? He said, you're leading it. I said, what? <laughs> but, yeah. But it, but I did get myself together after that. The, the most people don't believe that. But it, it kind of finished up very funny because um, there was still a small bit of a party atmosphere going on. And the, the, the day of the final table, Scott Gray was going around the hotel telling everybody that I'd gone missing and that they'd searched all the pubs and they couldn't find me. I, I was actually out with my auntie Breda uh, having chicken sandwiches <laughs> sure. and soup. <laughs> So we came back in to play the final table, so I, I brought a pint in just for image purposes and Paul Morrow was sitting beside me and I, when I finished the pint he suggested we have another one and I said, well you've got twice as many chips as I have, so maybe you should have two pints for every one I do. So he, he readily agreed to that and um, by the time he'd finished his two pints uh, I was only halfway through my first one. So we carried on like that. and. Um, we ended up heads up, so I mean, th th there is hope for the drunks, <laughs> but uh, it was kind of funny afterwards, I mean, like I probably had eight or nine pints at the final table, but it, you know, it took quite a while and I was in reasonable shape, but Paul Morrow was absolutely slaughtered, and I think when they went to interview him, he started singing In the Ghetto, uh, because, it, because it was Nicky Powers' uh, favourite song, and then uh, I did an interview, it was a little emotional, because I, I was kind of, you know, I, I had a lot of connections with Galway, but I got the, the blame for being drunk at the final day, but it was really Morrow. <laughs> and he'll tell you that. Um, Porkerstars actually had cameras at that event. Were you happy that the, the whole thing got recorded so you could watch it back later? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you should be reminded of what happened, surely. No, no, I knew exactly what happened. I mean, there was a bit, was a bit of messing around going on the final day, but I, mean, I was in control then. But if they'd had cameras on day two, I'd have, I'd have been <laughs> interested. <laughs> well, look, Porrick, you've been associated for a long time with the Irish Open. Uh, last week, we, of course, crowned a new champion in Griffin Benger. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that event, just to put Griffin's accomplishment in context? Well, I mean, the Irish Open for me and for like all the players of my generation will, will always be, um, uh, you know, the, the one they all want to win, what, apart from the World Series, obviously. Though Rory, um, Rory Liffey did an interview once and he was asked, if, was he going to the World Series? And he said he was, he wanted to practice for the Irish Open. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's what it means to a whole generation of players, you know. Um, so very quickly, it all happened when Terry Rogers went to, went to Vegas and just happened to drop into Binion's on a bit of business and, the, and uh, there was 30 or 40 Texans banging away playing for the, the World Championship and Terry met um, Benny Binion and uh, Terry was you know, a marketing genius and a visionary, I mean he was also a bit of a nut job but uh, Terry could immediately see the, the potential for this and, and when he came back to Dublin, he set up the Eccentrics Club up in Hanlon's Corner. It was like, um, it, was, it was just up on top of a shop, like, you know. But, uh, but, but for us, it was, you know, it was like walking into the Bellagio. And uh, he started off, um, he introduced tournament poker to Europe. And then he thought it might need a little bit of a, a boost. So he, um, he flew all the top players over to Kalini Castle in 1982. And, uh, you know, Doyle, Stewie, Chip, 
Slim, Puggy Pearson, you know, the list goes on. It's a bit like the GPO in 1916. There's a, there's a lot more guys say they were there than were, but I can guarantee you those guys actually were there. And um, Terry got the, the whole publicity going around the thing. And uh, the Irish Open kind of took off from there. And uh, but, but I mean, for sure, like uh, tournament poker started with the Irish Open. And uh, Terry was the guy who did it. And the Irish Open has kind of, I mean, it's gone through several phases, sponsors, the whole shebang. But uh, there's always, a, there's an atmosphere around the Irish Open that you, you don't normally find elsewhere. I mean, I think a lot of people, particularly the older players, uh, are, uh, are very conscious of the history and very proud of the history and very proud to have been part of it. Uh, we did some live stream commentary on the Irish Open final table and we also paired up in post-production for the TV coverage. How did you feel the chemistry was between us? And apart from me, who's your favourite co-commentator that you've worked with? Well, apart from you, obviously. <laughs> Um, oh, Jesse May for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, we're very good friends, and uh, there's a kind of a chemistry between us, and it, it kind of works in that um, Jesse does the straight guy, and uh, I clown around, <laughs> and um, you know, <laughs> Jesse does the business end. Of it. But uh, no, but Jesse was a great guy to commentate with because he's uh, he's, he's just naturally just so enthusiastic, yeah. and he's he's. Um, He's a world-class commentator because, uh, you know, Jesse's a very, very smart guy. I mean, um, you know, Je Jesse was at the, the Geniuses uh, High School in America in, in um, oh, what do you call it? Not whatever the status. And uh, but, uh, but, but but Jesse has, I mean, he's got the enthusiasm and he's got the knowledge, but he's also uh, very understanding of TV and. Uh, Jesse will have, I mean, he might have an idiot uh, doing co-commentary with me, with him, which, which he did most of the time, it was usually me. But uh, J Jesse was the great man to, uh, to ask a question that he knew the answer to himself and, uh, and let the guy off when he got it wrong. <laughs> But uh, you know, the, the, the commentary box is great crack. I mean, I've had a load of fun. I mean, I've, and uh, you, you can also learn quite a lot. I mean, uh, I, Mike Sexton um, won a WPT there a few months ago, and I think it was in, in November. And yeah. I, I phoned him the next day, and I think Mike's about to turn seventy, and he and he's been doing the, um, the the WPT commentary for like twelve or thirteen years without ever winning one. And uh, I just said to him, "It's about fucking time." I mean, you've had some of the best players in the world teaching you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember Jesse actually went deep in the Irish Open a few years ago mm. and I, I think everybody in Ireland wanted him to win. Oh God, what a, what a result it would have been. I mean, I, I think um, there was some messing around with the commentary or something and uh, it, was, it wasn't being televised but they, uh, they, they, Paddy Powers stuck Jesse in. So um, and we were all laughing, you know, thinking, <laughs> and he, he actually put on a pretty good performance. I think he finished like 14th or 15th or something and had the chip lead at one stage, but he was getting so excited. And, uh, and I promise you, he didn't know what the prize money was. I mean, he, he's so in love with Irish poker and the Irish Open. I mean, he was just having the, the time of his life. And it would have been fantastic for Irish poker if he'd won for the publicity reasons. I totally agree, Porrick. He's, uh, he's just such a w wonderful bloke as well, just, you know, just second to none. Uh, OK, last but not least... Even though the Chip Race is sponsored by Unibet Poker, they don't mind us letting our guests have a plug or two. So the Party Poker Millions is having its day two on April 20th in the dusk till dawn. 
it's an ambitious concept, it must be said. Rob Young, obviously a man who loves a sweat. Do you think it'll overlap? <laughs> uh, well, Simon Thumper told me it wouldn't, so it, it wouldn't, so it definitely will. But uh, <laughs> I mean, Rob Young is, you know, he's a little bit, there's a little bit of the uh, Benny Binion and uh, Terry Rogers and, and maybe the John Dutty in him. Um, that, that these guys, you know, there are guys that can see the future and Mike Sexton, obviously, I mean, and tell you what's going to happen and you wouldn't believe it. I mean, Mike Sexton told me in 1996 what was coming and, uh, and I didn't believe it, but I stayed drinking with him anyway. But, um, I mean, uh, Rob Young is, I mean, really taking the bull by the horns. I mean, I thought they were mad when they guaranteed five million and then they guaranteed six <laughs> the following week. I mean, I don't get it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tremendous that... Um, you, you know, you know, guys that are married and have kids. You, you know all about this now, David. That you know, they're all tied down, and they can't, they can't all take two weeks' holidays to go off to America to even try to satellite into the World Series and that. But I mean, we're having the big time um, brought to us here, and uh, you know, f- and for the recreational poker player, it's fantastic. I mean. You know, you can start off at one cent. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, the, but there is a whole satellite tree where um, you know you can get into the you know the, the six hundred, um, the, the six hundred uh, sort of phase one, I think they call it, and 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 then qualify for the day one for there. But you there you go. I mean, it's a very ambitious project, and it's going to go worldwide. I think. I mean, Rob has ideas that uh, that nobody else can understand. But. Um, that's what's going to happen, and party are, are backing him. I mean, party are making a bit of a, um, are, are giving it a right lash. I mean, they've got the, um, you know, the Grand Prix Tour. There's one of those in Dublin at the end of the month. Where they're guaranteeing, you know, we made the hundred thousand guarantee in Cork, so let's put the guarantee for Dublin up to one hundred and fifty thousand. So God knows what Killarney's going to be, but um, it's great. I mean, uh, it's where, like all, all the grassroots of poker. Um, can feel that that they're part of these events because you know the satellites are cheap you know online satellites and live satellites i mean i, th- I think like for years um you know the people that couldn't afford to go to america or or, or got priced out at the irish open or really had, didn't really have a place to go where they'd feel part of it and um and now customer service and um and making the thing friendly like i know you guys had a a very successful tournament in London. I, I saw That's some right, of yeah. the video clips on Twitter. It looked like everybody was having fun. But it's great to have that competition and that and, and that I, I love the way the thing has been fought out in, in, in customer services to the smaller guy because without the smaller guy there, there won't be a game. But he has to be made to feel that he's as important as the helmets and the Ivies and and, and the Griffins and whatever like. Yeah, and competition is so important for that as well, Porik. You know, if, there, if there's no competition, you know, you can't expect the service providers to to put on the best show that they can for the players. Yeah, it's like I, I think. Um, I mean, Stars obviously did a whole load of things right um, over the years, but they, but they seem to have got away from being the the crowd that were the, the the players' friend. And now there's a whole market in there that people are going for, and um, most of them genuinely because you know they've looked at the figures and they've. Um, they figured out that you need to get you, you need to make it fun, you know. The, the the time when there was money around, where guys would go off and play a poker game and splash a whole bunch of dough around and and um, and, and and not think that anything anything bad had happened or, or over. Like I mean, they they have to be getting the bang for their buck, 
and uh, they have to be made to feel important and I think that's what uh, Party and, and Unibet and a whole load of the smaller sites are, are all competing for now and I think it's great and the competition is tremendous for the players because uh, everybody's going to have to be playing their A game because um, that's the only way these sites are going to survive. Well, I totally agree with you, Parky, and of course, we wish you all the best, uh, you and Party Poker, uh, for the next year and with uh, hitting your guarantee, especially in the near future. Um, although maybe you don't hit your guarantee, I'm, I'm more happy to see that for, for the sake of the poker pros and, and players. Uh, well, thanks very much for having me, guys, and I wish you all the best with your, with your new endeavour. Playing us out tonight are a two-piece electronic garage group from Dublin. Thanks to Gavin White and Mark Cummins for this song, which I'm sure speaks to all of you out there who are currently in a downswing. From their Priory Hall EP, this is White Collar Boy and To Find Love When You're Down. again to Mark Convey and Porrick Parkinson next week we're hoping to bag ourselves a very special guest in the form of Poker Stars Pro and Vlog Star Jay Cody we'll also be sitting down with Unibet Ambassador live stream commentator and Twitch streamer David Vander Hayden until then from Dara Ian and myself good night and good luck Bye.